If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Wins and Losses with Clay Travis. Clay talks with the most entertaining people in sports, entertainment, and business. Now, here's Clay Travis. Welcome in Wins and Losses podcast. I am Clay Travis. I hope all of you are having a fantastic time wherever you may be across this great country or this great land. We are joined by a guy that I think has been doing incredible work uh, warding off Team Apocalypse, as he sometimes says it. He is Alex Berenson, a former New York Times reporter who has been focused on the coronavirus and the response of our government. Obviously, we talk a lot about politics and the intersection of sports as it pertains uh, to the return of sports. And so I thought he was going to be and is a perfect guest for us. So welcome in, Alex. Uh, I appreciate you joining us. For people who may not have followed you on Twitter or been reading the books that you have put out uh, that are available on Amazon, what is your background? Kind of introduce yourself to our audience as best you can. Sure. So uh, I uh, I worked for the New York Times from 1999 until 2010. I was a reporter. I was, I've, been, I've been a reporter since I graduated college in '94, and uh, 99 through 2010, I mainly did investigative reporting, business, really business investigative reporting. I covered the drug industry, a lot of stuff like that. And then in 2006, I wrote a, a spy novel because I'd been in Iraq in uh, in 2003 and 04 for the Times, not not for that long, but for a few months. And I, and I and I wound up writing this spy novel called The Faithful Spy um, about a CIA operative who converts to Islam and gets sent back to the United States. And Al Qaeda doesn't really trust him because they know he's American, and and the CIA doesn't really trust him because they know he converted. And that book did pretty well. Actually, it became a number one New York Times bestseller in paperback in 2008. And so, so writing these spy novels sort of took over my uh, my life for a number of years. Um, uh, and uh, and I left the Times in 2010, 
um, and to, to become a full-time novelist, um, which is interesting because because uh, I, I really think of myself more, and, and even when I was writing these books, I thought of myself more of a journalist than a novelist. And sometimes I, I kind of wish that I had been able to, you know, express my imagination more freely because I think that can make a really great novel. And sometimes I felt like I was a little bit bound by my desire to write authentic fiction rather than doing stuff that was a little bit more magical. But that, that's, a, that's a total side issue, but, but it is interesting to me that I went, then went back to journalism. So I, found, I wound up, after, um, after a number of years writing these spy novels, in 2019, well, it was really 2017-18, I wrote the book, but in 2019 it came out, I wrote a book called Tell Your Children, which is about cannabis and, um, and the dangers that it may present for some people. Right. And I wrote that Sorry, I, I, I hope that this is not too big a digression, but I sort of want people to understand my whole career, because sometimes people say, oh, he's just trading on his, you know, the fact that he worked for the New York Times for a little while, um, when in fact I worked for the Times for 10 years. But the reality is I've been a journalist almost my whole life. Um, uh, in any case, this book called Tell Your Children, I wrote because my wife is a psychiatrist who deals with the criminally mentally ill, and she would tell me about all these terrible cases she'd seen where what the people had in common who'd come to her, you know, attention or the people she was treating, um, it was that they were really heavy cannabis users. And I actually didn't believe this, okay? I did not believe this was a real problem, and I, and I kind of pushed back on her. But, you know, she's the psychiatrist. She's the one with the many years of medical training. She's the one who actually sees these people. She's the one who, um, you know... Who, who got, you know, who got all this training, and she told me, you know, essentially after a year or more of listening to me talk about stuff about which I didn't know what I was talking about, she said, why don't you go read the papers? So I went and read this stuff and realized, of course, she was right. She knew exactly what she was talking about. And I wound up realizing that there was a book here, not just in the idea that people, um, you know, that cannabis is a real risk to people's mental health, not everybody, but some people, but also the fact that nobody knew this, and that we're sort of marching towards uh, full legalization of this drug, and no one really had any idea of the risks, and that it was actually being sold to people as medicine. So that book became Tell Your Children, and that came out in early 2019. Uh, and, and that's directly relevant to this, because, because as soon as I wrote that book, essentially I became a cast out from the world of journalism, certainly from the world of sort of elite uh, New York slash Washington uh, academic, you know, slash New York Times slash, uh, you know, Ivy League pedigree journalism. I became a traitor to the class. So, so I, you know, I went to Yale. I worked for the New York Times. There's nothing that people who, who, who work at those places, you know, work at the New York Times or Washington Post like less than somebody who, who works there and doesn't, you know, play in the sandbox. And by saying that, you know, that cannabis is actually kind of a dangerous drug for some people and that, you know, by the way, you hear that, you know, that there are millions of black people in prison for, for you know, for having one join their pockets. And that's completely untrue. You can, you know, you can look at what the statistics are and they're completely not that. Um, and, you know, when I, when I pointed that out, people hated me. And, uh, and it became very hard for me to get uh, sort of national publicity for this book, aside from Fox and some other conservative outlets. And that was when I really saw for myself that polarization in the media, just how deep it is. So fast forward to March of this year. Um, and again, I apologize for the length of this, but it, but, but it really does inform what I've been doing the last six months. In March of this year, 
you know, really January, we all start hearing about this virus. There's this terrible videos coming out of China, very scary stuff. The hospitals are being overrun. We hear it's going to spread all over China. It's going to be completely impossible to stop. Um, you know, the, the, there's a travel ban from China. There's an argument about whether it's going to make any difference. February, nothing really happens for a little while. And then the hospitals in, in parts of northern Italy start getting overrun. And then, and then all of a sudden, it's here. It, the the, the, the uh, SARS-CoV-2 is in Seattle. It's in New York. It's here. And suddenly, in a matter of days, we shut down not just the United States. We shut down the whole world. And, and I certainly was nervous. I think, I think anybody with, you know, with a pulse was nervous at that time. Um, but, I, but I started to, you know, I started to read everything I could find about, um, about what the predictions were and why we had taken such a, you know, drastic and dramatic action. And more than anything else, there was one paper from a place called Imperial College London, which works with the World Health Organization, that drove this incredible action in mid-March. And the paper said 2 million people in the United States might die if there's a lockdown. Uh, you know, a half million people, in, or I'm sorry, if there's no lockdown, a half million people in Britain might die if there's no lockdown. We have to, we have to take incredibly uh, dramatic action. And so, um, and so I, I, I read that paper, and this was in mid-March, and I'll, I'll never forget, I'm, you know, I'm in, uh, you know, at home reading this on my computer, and I realized, Wait a minute. The vast, vast majority of deaths that are predicted here are in people over over eighty and seventy. Really, really eighty. But you know, and then uh, and then a fair number in the seventy to eighty band. This just doesn't look that dangerous to people under seventy. And that's not to say it's not real. It's not to say it's not dangerous. It's not to say it can't hurt people. But 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 my impression of this, like a lot of people had been, this is going to be the Spanish flu. This is going to kill pregnant women, and it's going to kill children, and it's going to kill healthy adults. And, you know, there's, there, there's going to be people dropping dead in the streets. And all of a sudden I realized that's not what this is at all. This is, this, is, this is a virus that really affects people who are at severe risk because of their age or because they're really severely ill with other conditions. And, and it's like the scale fell from my eyes. And ever since then, um, I've been trying to, trying, to talk, trying to get people to talk reasonably about what the risks are and what we should be doing. And that doesn't mean we should be doing nothing. It means that we should stop pretending that everybody's at equal risk here, everybody's at, you know, anything near equal risk here, and maybe we should be trying to protect the people who are the most vulnerable, but why on earth are we letting this destroy our society as we have? And everything that I've reported practically in the last five months has only served to make me feel more strongly about this. You know, and I'll just give you one example, and then, I, and then I'll stop talking and let you, you know, ask questions. Um, there was a lot of talk in 2005, 2006, 2007 about what if another, um, you know, uh, bad flu hit. Uh, you know, there'd been the anthrax attacks in 2001. George W. Bush was very concerned about uh, bioterrorism. There'd also been the SARS scare in 03. There'd been a swine flu scare in 05. And so we spent a lot of time back then really thinking about this. Very smart people, um, you know, in government, outside government, uh, people who'd been experts on pandemics. Uh, and they all basically reached this, uh, the same conclusion, which is a big lockdown is not a great idea. Like this, this is even, even if it's really serious, even if it's on the order of the Spanish flu, what you want 
is you want to encourage sick people to stay home. You may want to temporarily close schools, you know, maybe for, uh, maybe for a few weeks. Maybe you encourage people to telecommute. Maybe you encourage people not to use, you know, mass public transportation at the height of this. But the idea that, that this, that the correct response to a pandemic, even a really severe pandemic, would be to shut down the world with all the pain that that would cause uh, our economy and all the pain that would cause people working and all the pain it would cause children not to be able to go to school, not to be able to see their friends, some of those children at very severe risk, you know, being in abusive homes, uh, you know, or, or children with special needs who really are, are you know, need need people who are who are well trained to take care of them and it's very very difficult for their parents to take care of them 24/7 all of that was considered and and people said let's not panic when this happens let's have a bunch of rules reasonable rules that we're going to follow and and unfortunately when the moment came this march we threw all of that away and we have been suffering for it ever since so much to unpack there. I'm Clay Travis. This is Wins and Losses, and we're talking with Alex Berenson, a former New York Times employee who's been covering the coronavirus since March, as you heard him say. Okay, I'm going to unpack. I'm going to go back in several different directions. You mentioned this expert forecast, this Niall Ferguson, I believe is his name, uh, at the Imperial College of London. Why did he get it wrong so badly, and why did so many people believe his forecast to such an extent because there were a lot of forecasts out there what i've been saying is the fear porn led the media to adopt the worst possible forecast uh how what happened there that that particular forecast became for lack of a better term viral and the central linchpin of many decisions to lock down around the globe leading to disastrous consequences i believe what was it about that forecast that so captured the public's imagination and the media's imagination? So, so that's a that's a great, great question, Clay. And and you know, in 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 in, in the law, so that, so I've written these two booklets, as you as you, yes. as you were kind enough to mention. And the second one is about the lockdown. The first one is really about death and what a worst case uh, projection might be in the U.S. and how we're counting deaths and has there been overcounting? All of those questions. The second one is about lockdowns, and and so and. And so it is fascinating that that Neil Ferguson, that Professor Ferguson, um, became the, the authority on this because he's not a doctor, okay, and he's yeah. not a virologist. He's a physicist by training, and his specialty is making these epidemiologic models, which and he's actually in, failed at tremendously in the past, you, right? You you are exactly right. He has failed tremendously at those models, and and at one point he said that 200 million people might die from uh, from swine flu in 05. And, uh, you know, I mean, that number was a joke. Okay, but, but nobody ever seems to ha- remember the mistakes that he's made. So, so a couple of, uh, there are a couple of issues. The, the, the first is you need to know how lethal the virus is. And it appears that the virus is less lethal than we thought it was uh, in, you know, in, in January through March. Now, there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, the data from China, nobody really knew how, what to make of it. Nobody really knew if we could believe it. But there's a much even more serious and deep problem than that, which is you need to know how many people are being infected. And with this virus, it appears that there are a tremendous number of people who are infected who basically don't know it. They're either asymptomatic or so lightly symptomatic that if they were not tested, they would never know it. And because of that, 
this is actually much less lethal than we thought it was back then. Okay, And it appears that there may be a significant number of people who never can get it at all. And we don't know how many that is, but, there, but, there, but there's been a big and ongoing argument in the scientific community about what's called uh, T-cell cross-reactivity. Which, by which the way, the New York Times finally wrote about, finally right? They wrote about, about today, right. literally, as we're talking about this. They wrote, we're talking about this for people out there who are listening, who knows when they'll be listening uh, officially. We're talking on Monday, uh, the 17th of August, and there's an article today about that in the New York Times about the fact that there may be a ton of people who have immunity to this virus and trying to figure out why suddenly, for instance, in New York, the infection rate just fell off a cliff. And as you, I imagine, have seen as well, the same thing now is happening in the South. Indeed, yeah. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis just came out and basically said the bottom has fallen out of the outbreak, in quotation marks, in Florida as well. Well, good for him for saying it because it's true, and he's been he's been better on this, and uh, you know, sort of more forward thinking on this than anybody else. And the media hates him for it, and he has not benefited politically for it. He clearly is only doing it because he believes that he's doing the right thing, and and good for him for that. Um, uh, you know, the, but to the, your point, your we, point is here. Yeah. I think a good one: the death rate and the number of infections. If you don't know those two numbers, then whatever epidemiological expert forecast you create is essentially valueless because your numerator and your denominator both have issues so it's almost impossible to come up with a reliable predictive forecast that, that, that is exactly correct that is it that so if a thousand people have died if we know a thousand people have died and we think 10,000 were infected that's a 10 percent death rate okay that means one person of 10 who got it has died that's terrible. Okay, that that you know if that would mean you know thirty million people in the U.S. would die if everybody got it. Okay, but if the truth is that a million people have already gotten and not ten thousand, and one thousand of those people have died, that's a death rate of one tenth of one percent. It's one one hundredth what I just said. Okay, and that would mean that three hundred thousand people in the U.S. would die if if everybody got it. Okay, which, you know, that's, you could say 300,000 people is a lot of people, but that's because the U.S. is a big country, okay? Smoking preventably kills a half million people in the U.S. every year. So we get big numbers when you have big countries. But so, so Ferguson made this estimate, and, 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 you know, and the people around him made this estimate, and they didn't really know what the numbers were. Okay, that is forgivable, by the way. It's early in an epidemic. You are, you, are, you are guessing. You are going with, you know, sort of dirty data from China. You don't really have much from Western countries yet. It is forgivable. What is not forgivable is when more data comes in and you update not to tell people the truth. And Ferguson, and this was the tweet, actually, that got me noticed more than any other this was, this was about 10 days after that first paper came out. So Ferguson, who had gotten the coronavirus by this time, um, uh, was testifying remotely to a British parliamentary committee. And he said, oh, you know how I said half a million people might die from the coronavirus if we didn't do anything in the U.K.? Let's make it 25,000. And, you know, it, there will be no – there will be a spike, and it will be over by mid-April or late April – and after that, I think it's going to be okay. That was basically what he said. Okay, it was a it was a monumental change in his forecast that he that he that he tried to pass off as well. This is just kind of a, an adjustment here, and this is because we locked down. It's not true. 
Okay, he made a monumental change in the forecast, and the media refused to acknowledge it or, or, or ask him what had happened or call him on it. And that was when I realized this is just like tell your children, only the stakes are much, much bigger. This has become a politicized issue already. This is about people who want us to be in lockdown. They want to push us there, um, you know, for whatever reason, because they're genuinely afraid or because, you know, they have other... Uh, you know, they have other motivations, which, uh, which are not necessarily obvious to me at this time, but, but there's going to be a fight here, and it's not only going to be about science. And that, was, and that was something that I knew could happen because of Tell Your Children. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating Cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferreira, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Why did, and this is, becomes a fascinating question, we're talking with Alex Berenson, uh, you can go read his two different uh, books that he's published on Amazon, which I'm going to get to here in a moment, uh, but you've elucidated one of the major issues that I think has gone with the coverage of the coronavirus from the get-go, and I'm curious as a member of uh, the former New York Times media establishment, for lack of a better phrase, how you would analyze this. It seems to me that there are 
anecdotal outlier cases which have driven the coverage of the coronavirus since this started. In other words, 35-year-old person dies, oh my God, pregnant woman's got it, her baby's got it now. And when we actually look at the, the raw data, the numbers tell us a different story and a much more calming story. And so, for instance, uh, it seems to me that emotion has totally overtaken the way that this uh, story was covered. And I thought it was crystallized when the New York Times on, I think it was Memorial Day weekend, writes like 100,000 deaths and incalculable lost uh, as their headline with just a bunch of different names on it. What has happened here? Why has emotion overtaken the media? Why has logic and probability and all of these things not taken root? Because I keep, and I'm just going to put this out because a lot of people will be listening, from a sports perspective, uh, kids driving to college campuses are more likely to die driving to their college campus in a car accident than they are from the coronavirus. They're more likely to die of the flu, murder. Uh, They're more likely to die of drug overdose. They're more likely to die of drinking too much alcohol. All of these are more dangerous threats if you're a parent with a college-age student. Yet right now, sports are being shut down in the Big Ten and the Pac-12 because of this overwhelming fear porn, which people still can't escape. Why did the media fail so much talking to the public about this story and fail so much, by the way, that they almost managed to destroy their own business because, you know, like fear may be well lead, but the advertising market destroyed. When you shut down the economy, it's like your ratings may go up on MSNBC and CNN and Fox News as well to a certain extent. But also nobody can buy anything because the economy has collapsed. It's like that. Yeah, people more watched, but you almost destroyed the entire country in the process. Why did they get it wrong? How did this happen? Another great question. So there's several factors at play here. First of all, don't underestimate the amount of real raw fear that there was in mid-March, late March. Yes. Even into early April, especially. Even among people who are media members who should be more analytical, at least in my mind, and less emotion-based, they gave into it as well. Uh, Well, I wouldn't, you know, I don't think there's any reason to believe people in the media have cool heads. Uh, You know, maybe there's a few war reporters out there who have cool heads, but, you know, you don't, you don't get, you get into the media because you like, you like action and yeah. controversy and something new every day. Okay, it's not necessarily something that leads to, to uh, you know, a lot of like uh, you know reasoned analysis. Uh, yeah, exa- exactly. But but so remember, it was bad in New York for a few days. Okay, it was there were there were uh, you know the the, the the bubble of excess deaths was real. What happened at Elmhurst was real. Now, where are things that we didn't understand at that time, including that, you know, the rush to put people on ventilators was killing a bunch of people, and that the quality of care at some of these hospitals, unfortunately, probably was not very good. You know, some of these, some of the city's municipal hospitals, you know, they struggle at the best of times, and these were not the best of times. But, but but, but the the fear was real, okay? And so, and, and and people very very quickly decided to blame Donald Trump. You have failed us, and it is your fault that people are dying. And that became a very comforting narrative for people in the media. And it is not it is not giving anything away to say that outside of Fox, Donald Trump is not just not liked, but but he is despised by many yeah. people in the media. And so and so so this started as a genuine fear of the unknown okay and and then 
and and believe me, I was in the city in March. Okay, I, I don't. I, I you know my uh, my mother and brother live in New York City. Uh, you know, and, and I was in to see I was in to see them a bunch, and it was it was scary. You know, it not not because of what was happening, but just because of the emptiness of the streets and this feeling that you know the end is upon us. Okay, so that was. That's now five months ago, though, Clay. So what's happened since then? Well, unfortunately, a couple of things have happened. First of all, people in the media, for the most part, there are exceptions, but for the most part, are not good at math. Okay, they're yes. not good at statistics. <laughs> yes. They're not good at math. And they, and, and, and they haven't ever put this in context, either for themselves or for anybody else. So, uh, so Clay, 45 children under the age of 15 died of coronavirus uh, as of August 1st, had died of coronavirus in the United States. And, um, and you know, 45 children, that, that sounds like a lot of children, and obviously 45 children is 45 children too many. But 13,000 children of, in that age group have died in the United States in the last six months. So that's one in 300. You know, more children have died of drowning and in car accidents and, um, and, of, and of abuse and neglect and of cancer and of many, many other things. So, but journalists have never put these numbers in context. I don't, think they, I, I don't think they understand them. And I think the handful who do understand them, for the most part politically, are not interested in offering context. Another thing that happened with the media is that the media quickly realized, and this is, you can see it, okay, it's, it's overt on places like CNN and MSNBC, that this was the perfect issue to beat Donald Trump over the head with. Because Trump, you know, and, and I'm a registered political independent, okay, um, you know, my core political philosophy, if it's anything, is it's impossible to be too cynical about our politics these days. <laughs> I, yes. Really. But, but the media... The media saw that Trump's sort of, you know, his his arrogance and his bluff and his desire to make a joke out of things that played incredibly badly when it came to this, and and so and they realized it and they have and they have nearly destroyed him with it, and so that's been very very effective for them. So so to me, what happened in March and April is forgivable. Okay, it's forgivable that a bunch of people panicked and some of us recognized earlier than others that this wasn't all it was made out to be and that this was going to be manageable and that the hospitals were not going to be overrun and it really should be something that we as a society should just should just try to go about our business and let the medical system handle this as it, as has happened now in places like Florida and Arizona and some people didn't realize this quickly but everything that's happened since then has been to a greater or lesser extent politically driven and that makes it very hard for me um, to accept this is also fascinating to me so let's go back to uh, let's go back to Florida and Arizona which you just mentioned Florida and Arizona, as we speak, on August 17th, effectively, again, Ron DeSantis came out. Uh, I'm going to read some of the data points that he just tweeted, and frankly, he had to tweet it because I don't think anybody would cover it otherwise, uh, which goes into the media coverage of this on a straightforward uh, basis. So I'm reading directly from Ron DeSantis's tweets earlier today. He said, Florida's reporting the lowest number of cases, 2,760 since mid-June. Emergency room visits for COVID-like illness are down 60% since July 7th. Hospital admissions for COVID are down 60% since July 21st. The number of COVID-positive patients currently hospitalized is down 40% since July 21st. And 
They have 26.4% of all hospital beds available in the state, 23% of all ICU beds. The pre-pandemic percentages, by the way, 12.6% available, 9.3% of ICU beds available. So the worst case scenario basically happened for, as you would call it, team apocalypse in Florida and in Arizona. And we handled it without really a substantial loss of life now, nothing like what happened in New York and in New Jersey. As we look forward with the data now there from Florida and Arizona, does anything change or are people so committed to the idea that the coronavirus is uh, the the, the most devastating thing that's going to happen in anybody's lifetime that there's no ability to acknowledge that we can start to get back to normalcy now? I mean, so that's a that's a political question. I don't have the answer to that. I've been yeah. waiting for for the reality to set in, you know, for three months plus now. Yes, and, right. And, and and you would think that you're you're right. Like the worst case happened. Okay, the states unlocked. There was rapid, uncontrolled spread all over the Sun Belt, and 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 nothing terrible. And they really had a fraction happened. of the deaths of New York and New Jersey uh, as a result. The, that's right. I think I, you know, the Florida peak death day might have been 300. Um, you know, Texas, I think around 300. Also, you know, this is a fraction of New York, and 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 it looks like deaths are deaths in Arizona are definitely trending down. Okay, Florida, Texas have been a couple weeks behind Arizona, so they may be they may be still on the flat part of the plateau, or they may be trending down too. But it is going to be harder and harder to argue that this that this is not over. Okay, if it's if it's certainly in the Sun Belt, and that and that we didn't do anything, those states really didn't do anything. So you're hearing somehow that the mask mandates made the difference, or closing bars made the difference. I mean, this is this is nonsense. First of all, a lot of people in those states were wearing masks before the mandates, and second of all, bar closings like that's that's what stopped this this incredible once in a lifetime epidemic. We closed a few bars for a couple of weeks. I mean, I mean, you know, people are saying this stuff with a straight face. So I. Here's 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 what I've wondered. I've wondered how long it will take for the media to acknowledge reality, and then I've wondered how long it will take for that reality to percolate into the people who are so afraid still right now. And and it does seem to me like the divide is getting sharper. The divide yes. between people who are afraid and not afraid is getting sharper. And I and, and, and I don't know what fixes that. We're talking to Alex Berenson. You can follow him on Twitter. Uh, I'll tweet out the link to his profile. He's had incredible data analysis from the get-go. Okay, what made you willing to question the overriding narrative? I've obviously done it in the world of sports, and it's astounding uh, to me how many members of what I call the blue checkmark brigade in sports media have been buying into these apocalyptic theories from the get-go such that they get, they're get they furious at me for sharing any kind of positive news, for suggesting that sports can be played. Uh, I've labeled them all Corona Bros in the sports media. It's like they're rooting for the worst possible outcome, right? The minute that an athlete tests positive, they're the first ones to run to Twitter and be like, oh my God, you know, look at what's happened with the Miami Marlins. A bunch of healthy guys are testing positive for a virus they never would have known they had unless we were testing them aggressively, right? I mean, that's the reality. And, that's the reality. and so it's crazy. In my universe, there's hardly anybody sharing actual facts and combating what I would call the fear porn, which tries to make it such that sports can't be played, that your son can't play Little League, that your daughter can't play soccer. All these things are certainly get to schools, which I want to get to in a moment. 
why do you think that that the media and i'm curious on this perspective from you it used to be you said you know be cynical be skeptical i would say that in general i am a skeptic i tend to be skeptical of every and any and everything maybe that's my legal background maybe that's my natural persona but it seems to me that the media completely abandoned that natural skepticism and not only abandoned the natural skepticism, but severely policed anyone who didn't buy into the overriding narrative of complete danger instead of being rebels or instead of being people who pushed back against the tide, which I think is what you would hope journalists would do. When did journalists become the people who are out there enforcing what opinions people can have and how has it impacted you in what I'm imagining you're now the black sheep of the New York Times fraternity, you're completely ostracized. So, uh, so you know, it, it fascinates me, and, and I don't know how much you hate you get. I, I imagine you get a lot of hate, too. Yes, people a say lot. Ter- terrible things. Like, I want their grandmas to die, me. right? That's the thing I get yeah, the most. Like, you don't care about old people dying. Now, I would say, no, I wish everybody was immortal, right? I wish, but, you know, 2.8 million people die every day in this, every year in this country, 7,500 a day. Everything has to be balanced contextually. This idea that the coronavirus has to dictate every decision that we make as social policy for the entire year is crazy to me. It's a childlike uh, understanding of nuance and complexity, yet I see people who value their own knowledge of nuance and complexity fully embracing it, and I just wonder what in the world is going on in their brains. Yes. So, I mean, look, look. I mean, I get called a sociopath. Okay. Yes. I, I, you know, people people tell me, people have told me, you know, not not the blue check so much, although some of the blue checks have said they hope I die, they hope I die. Yeah, oh, yeah, it. people, people <laughs> regularly, the blue check mark brigade, regularly they remember saying, I hope you get this and I hope you die. They even Some of the people yeah. out there have even taken it a step further. I've got three young kids, and they're in school now, and, you know, when I mention that, they're like, I hope your kids get sick and die. That would serve you right. Like, who roots yeah, for mean, children to die? Like, I mean, this is crazy to me. That's right. It's crazy. I mean, and you know, my my somebody somebody uh, somebody said, "Well, Fauci says he's getting death threats." It's like, well, you know what? I, I, you know the old joke: if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. At this point, if you ain't getting death threats, you oh, ain't trying. I get death threats I mean, every I, day. Come on, live a little. All all the time, right? So so, I, you know, look. There's Trump. The, the the Trump hatred is enormous, and the un and the sort of innumeracy of the media is enormous. And I guess. I guess, you know, the groupthink is enormous, okay? And and people and it's unfortunate because it means that do you know there there are there are many Is social people media on making it worse? Is social yes. media making groupthink worse in your oh. mind as somebody who worked oh. at the New York Times in a pre basically oh. social media era? Oh, absolutely. It's made it much worse. And there's something else that's happening which is not much discussed, but which has definitely been a real problem at the New York Times. And I think it's a problem at workplaces in general, which is so texting makes it possible to run conspiracies. And I mean and I mean, you know, I mean a real conspiracy in a way that you couldn't before. In other words, there can be five people in a room and one of them has an opinion that the other four don't like, and the other four are able to have a conversation about that fifth person in front of him without him knowing. Yeah. Okay. And that makes it easier to ostracize. It makes it easier to drive people out because all of a sudden you say, you know what, I'm going to tweet this. And everybody else is like, okay, let's, you know, let's do it. Let's jump in. And, or, or, you know, it isn't even quite that over. It's I'm going to tweet this and you send it around to the other three people who don't like the last person in the room and they and they just jump on. 
So, so there's been there's you know the, I'm sure you've heard it. Uh, the you know it's called dogpiling, right? So dogpiling yeah. is when you, you know a, a thousand people tell you that you should never speak again. Yes. Okay. And you have to be a certain kind of person to decide. I don't care. Right. And I am that kind Which of person. You, you are, and too. I think I am too. Like I just yeah. I genuinely don't care. I mean, again. I don't see this as partisan. I don't see it as Democrat. I don't see it as Republican. You said you're a registered independent. I worked on Al Gore's presidential campaign. Uh, I wasn't particularly political. I've never voted for a Republican president. But I look at all this and I'm like, you know, I'm a First Amendment absolutist and I love rigorous debate. And to me, and I want to get to the analogy you've made, to me, I say the decision to go to war in Iraq is the biggest failure in the 21st century prior to our response to the coronavirus from a social policy perspective. You've gone even further back and said you think in years to come, we'll look back on our response to the coronavirus as the worst decision in American policy since the Vietnam War. Uh, that's fascinating to me because it what, what it would require is analysis and recognition from so many people that they misdiagnosed and misresponded to this instance. In the Vietnam War, because the opposition was liberal, it seems like the media was willing to acknowledge that because they're yeah. like, hey, we got this one right. I think the predominantly liberal media is not going to be willing to acknowledge it with the coronavirus because it wasn't the people who were liberal who were leading the charge necessarily on, oh, my God, this response is totally ludicrous. Right. No, it's going to be very, very hard to get people to admit that. And, and you know, what's going to happen is the people who don't want to admit it are just going to say 160,000 dead, 160,000 dead, or 170,000, 180, wherever it is that we, we top out on this. Again, without acknowledging that, that half those people were in nursing homes and had a life expectancy in, in months, and that a significant portion of the rest were really very sick. Yes. Okay. That, 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 in other words, if you look ahead to next year, for instance, the death rate may well be down or even at the end of the months of this year, depending how, on how things go, because the people who got the coronavirus and died may have died a month or two earlier than they otherwise were. But we're not talking about, as you said, 45 kids under 15. When you look at the total number of years lost of life, we're not talking about a massive amount because the average person dying of the coronavirus is old than the average age of person dying of all causes. That, that's right. And, and at the same time, they will be unwilling to admit the damage of the lockdowns, which has been so enormous. And this is something, you know, I think I might feel this, you know, as much as anybody, because people email me who are in pain. You know, yes. they, you know, this is a funny thing about Twitter. People feel that they, you know, that they that they know me yes. and that and that they and that they want to and that they want to open up to me. And, and there are people who are in awful pain. Now, now look, I'm not going to say that, you know, that these people were perfectly happy before this happened and, you know, coronavirus is the only problem in their lives. But what I'm saying is that if, if you have some kind of, you know, psychiatric or psychological weakness, the last five months have been terrible for you, for a lot of people. 25% right? of people out there, Alex, have uh, young people, according to a recent study that I saw, have considered suicide. And yeah. suicides yeah, and drug overdoses and everything yeah. else as we've taken away people's ability to go to work, to go to school, to go to church, to go to things yep. that connect them to the larger fabric of society, they have fallen apart as well. And we're not talking hardly at all about that. We're not talking about it at all. And just the sheer terror that some people feel from this. I mean, the way people have behaved and the way they've behaved, people with children who haven't let their children out of the house for, for months. Months. I mean, that's, that's not, some people have months. done that. They've 
some people have done that. And so, you know, people, you can find stories on Twitter without trying too hard of people proudly saying, I haven't left my apartment since March. And what, like, what are you doing? I, yeah. I don't care if you have a 10% risk of dying from this thing. What are you doing to yourself? And you don't. I mean, you have a, you have a, you know, one one hundredth of 1% risk if you're, you know, 40 year old guy or whatever, you know, if the risk is minuscule. Yeah. Okay. But, but uh, people, people have wrenched themselves into terror about this. And as a society, we are tearing ourselves up over it. And, you know, and, and, and here's the thing about lockdowns, okay? You either lock down too early or too late. Here's your choices. You lock down like Britain when it's already spread all over the place, in which case you still have uncontrolled spread in nursing homes. And, and, and you know, as a result, the U.K. has the worst death rate anywhere of any country in the world, any major country. And they lock down very hard but late. Or you lock down really early like New Zealand, in which case you're living in fear of this stupid thing forever. And whenever there's a case, you have to decide whether or not to lock down again. Or you treat it like what it is, a manageable respiratory virus, and you go on with life like the Swedes did. And yes, some people will die, and then you'll be done. And, imp- and, and life yeah. goes on. How important is it for schools to be open in your mind? I've got three kids, 12, 9, and 5. Come Monday, all three of them, a week from today when we're talking, all three of them will be in in-person school on Monday, August 24th, where I live. So, so, so our kids are going back to school uh, one week later. They're going back on September first. We, for, well, my kids are, you know, a little bit younger than yours, uh, and for, you know, we're in New York. We actually seriously considered moving this summer, and I'm glad we didn't because, you know, places we thought we might have moved to, they're now saying the schools are going to be closed at least through November. But fortunately, they're at a little, uh, you know, they're at a little private school, um, you know, in, in New York State, and and they'll be able to to have five day a week school, which is a uh, you know, which is so important for their mental health, for their learning, for their socialization, for their understanding that life goes on, for their physical growth. It's so vital that schools be open, and it is so wrong that, that the teachers' unions are refusing this and are fighting about this. It couldn't be more wrong. And, and of all the things we've done, it is the absolute worst. And, and all over Europe, by the way, schools are reopening. All over Asia, schools are reopening. This if, there, if you want proof of anything, or if you want proof in a way that they're, you know, the best possible proof that this is a, just a totally political issue at this point, look at the fact that many jurisdictions are saying we're going to reopen or consider reopening in late October, early November. Yeah. In other words, right? What, what's happening in early November that might cause that to happen? And by the way, if you really cared, you'd want them open now. Because it's before flu season. That's right. Instead, we're going to reopen as flu season is coming back. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, 
You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking to Alex Berenson. I'm Clay Travis. This is the Wins and Losses podcast. Um... There are so many things here that continue to amaze me. Uh, why do you think your social media feed has been so filtered with? Why do you think your books, which went up on Amazon, have in many ways not been distributed like they would? Why is Fox News the only place? I think you've talked with Paul Feinbaum on his radio show. Uh, but by and large, I would imagine, you know, the, the quote unquote mainstream of the media, many people have have ignored you. I know the New York Times did a piece. I think Ben Smith, if I'm not mistaken, yep. uh, I read a piece there. Uh, but why do you think you have become persona non grata? If you had been the person out there saying we've got to shut down everything. If, In other words, if you instead of being the guy who has said, hey, I think we're overreacting. If you had been the overreactor, you would be lauded by the media. It's wild to think about, right? Same thing would be true for me. If I had been the king of shutdowns, lockdowns, sports can never play again, my media colleagues and sports media would have been like, oh, how brave of him, when the reality is saying what you or I are saying is infinitely more brave than following the herd. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's brave. It's just it's just, following it's just facts, accurate, right? Well, yeah, yeah, right. But, I mean, no, a lot no, of people are, are agree no. with us but won't say it publicly because they're worried about the consequences or the ostracization. Because I'm mean, sure you've heard from a lot of people yep. in your industry, as I have, who have said, hey, keep saying what you're saying, but they don't want to say it themselves. Yep, I get that. I, I, yeah, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you get it, too. It's, I mean, although it's not a surprise to me. Why do, listen, look, people, I've been saying to a lot of people, uh, you're wrong. You're wrong about this. Yes. You don't know what you're talking about. And I've been saying, in a, in a, and I won't back down, and you can't shut me up, and I'm going to keep pointing to facts and statistics. And I don't care if you think I used to be a good journalist, and I'm not anymore because I'm exactly the same journalist I was right. 
when you like me, I'm just saying something you don't like. And people people can't stand it. And, um, you know, again, I, I think as, as we have found, it takes a certain kind of personality to be willing to say this stuff. And it's easier just to shoot the messenger. And one of the things that I've discovered actually recently on Twitter is that there are people out there, media people, um, who've just blocked me preemptively. People I've yeah. never Oh, yeah, that happens to, to me all the time. Yes. And, and, and it's like, what do you think you're gaining from this? They are so upset by having their narrative challenged that for people out there who don't recognize what you're saying, people who are in media, like I will, people I've never interacted with, this happens to me all the time in sports, they'll have a tweet out, somebody else will retweet it, and I'll be like, oh, that's interesting, I'm curious what they said, and I'll go to read it, and I'll realize that they've blocked me. I've never interacted with them, I've never in any way, you know, like debated any issue with them, and then boom, they've got me blocked. Yep. I mean, the media is incredibly hyper-partisan right now. And here's the thing. At Fox, they know they're partisan, okay? Yeah. But the New York Times and CNN, they're still pretending they're not. Now, that right. pretense has sort of fallen away, but it's still, it's still there to some extent. And, and um, you know, look, uh, Paul, Paul Feynman, he's a really good guy. I'm really glad he's had me on, okay? Yes. But, but basically, aside from Fox and One America and other conservative outlets, he's the only one. You know, yeah. I was I was supposed to go on CNBC several times. I had confirmed interviews, and they canceled on me. CNN right. and Paul and Paul, by the way, knows me from the novels, which is why he, you know, why he's a, like he's kind of a fan of my novels, and that's why he had me on to begin with. But you know, CNN, Aaron, you know, Aaron Burnett, she's a fan of my novels. I was going to go on with her a couple months ago. That got canceled. Never rescheduled. So, yeah. so uh, there is a, clearly a media blackout. And, and look, I, I, I really am glad to have the chance to talk to you. I'm glad to have the chance to talk to Tucker Carlson and Laura and, and everybody else on Fox. But Fox doesn't reach the whole country because That's we right. are so siloed. And people need to hear what you and I have to say, even if they think we're wrong. Yes. It would be better for them to know that there's another side to this. And that you can debate it. And that goes to a larger question. I'm sure you get this all the time. I went to law school. It's interesting. You made a, a, a living as a novelist. I went and got an MFA at Vanderbilt. I've got two advanced yeah. graduate degrees from Vanderbilt, all right? Uh, and prior to that, I went to GW. You can like me or dislike me. There are decent academic credentials for me. You went to Yale. You worked at the, at the New York Times for a decade. Uh, one of the things I think that offends people out there is we're part of their ruling class uh, of elites, whatever you want to call it, and we're not succumbing to their story. But how do you respond to people out there who are listening to us? And I'm sure people will pop in as soon as I tweet this out. Oh, let's go listen to those guys. They're not doctors. They're not lawyers. When did you get your degree in virology? Are you an epidemiological expert? How would you respond to that segment of Twitter that believes that because you and I do not have medical degrees, aren't epidemiological PhDs, do not have sure. uh, advanced degrees in virology, that we're not allowed to talk about this? Here's what I'd say. I try to avoid talking about the practice of medicine. And I've yep. stayed far away from, you know, the HCQ debate. And I, there are people out there who want Same to thing for me, it. by the way. I, there yeah. are people more knowledgeable inside of hospitals to yeah. talk about that. I've just looked at the data, but continue. That's, that's right. So, 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 so you know, uh, medicine is something that you get a degree, you know, and you practice. That's between doctors and patients. And, you know, how exactly the spike protein, you know, enters the cell and how the virus replicates, those are difficult technical questions that I don't claim to know anything about. Amen. Okay. Yes. But, but here's, here's what I can do, okay? I can look at a model 
that says there are going to be 65,000 people in hospital beds in New York in New York State on April 5th, and it is April 5th, and there are 16,000 people in hospital beds in New York State that day. And the model's off by a factor of four, even though it was only made a week ago. Yes. And I can say, what on earth is going on here? Why is this so wrong? How did you get this so wrong? And what does it mean that it's so wrong? Okay? Is it because, you know, little green men have taken all those people out of hospital beds? Or is there something wrong with the model? And if there's something wrong with the model, what does it mean? What does it mean about lockdowns? What does it mean about what our response should be? And I can say to people, what does it mean that, you know, 50% of the people who died are in nursing homes? And why aren't we talking about that all the time? And why aren't we trying to protect those people instead of shutting schools when kids are at no risk? You do not, and, and I always say no risk, and then I have to say there's, there's obviously always a, a risk for everything. And, and here's the other thing That's right. that would tie in with that too, Alex. Uh, and I'm Clay Travis. You're listening to Wins and Losses with Alex Berenson as we finish up here. Here's the other thing that matters a great deal. Those forecasts being wrong actually, I believe, led to a much elevated death rate in New York and New Jersey because they sent all those patients back into nursing homes because they believed those forecasts that they were going to need 100,000-plus hospital beds, when in reality, I believe it peaked at 19,000 instead of 140,000 like the forecast. So the forecasters being so wrong literally cost probably tens of thousands of additional lives of people that would otherwise have survived because of the overreaction. I mean, I, I, I don't think we, we can prove that yet, but I think there's a, there's a case to be made there. Yes. But so, look, I, look, if there was one thing I was good at as a journalist, or, or you, know, you know, a couple of things I was good at, I, I was good at finding stuff in documents that people didn't want me to find. But what I was really good at was saying to people, hey, you said X yesterday, and you're saying Y today. Yes. What, what's changed? Why, why is it? That, you're, that, 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 that what you said yesterday isn't what you're saying today, and what's on the ground is really Z, okay? And I don't need to be an epidemiologist to ask those questions. I just need to be able to look at the data myself a little bit, okay? And I don't claim to be an epidemiologist, but, but I challenge anybody to go back and look at my, my, uh, my reporting for the New York Times and say either that I'm some kind of you know, right-wing person or that you know that my reporting isn't airtight um and you know even ben smith and that piece you know that let's not even talk about the piece you know he said like i this guy was a good journalist at the new york times yes and you know i will i will i will i will fight that battle to my grave uh final question for you for people out there who have enjoyed our conversation we might need to have another conversation because i think people are going to absolutely love this i've been talking with alex berenson i'm clay travis wins and losses how would they find you how can they read what you have written on amazon how would you instruct them to be able to uh, to consume more of the content that you are putting out there sure so i mean twitter has been my main outlet and i will say you know twitter has been pretty good to me I, i've been concerned but they you know they had they do seem to have a commitment to free speech and um, you know, my audience has grown, you know, from fewer than 10,000, almost 200,000 in the last few months. Um, so it's just Alex Berenson, uh, you know, uh, on Twitter and just, you know, just my A-L-E-X-B-E-R-E-N-S-O-N. Yep. Um, and then I have these two booklets out, which you can get on Amazon or Apple. You can download them, too. Um, you know, I, I, there's another one I need to put out actually really about masks and schools, because as we've talked about, the school thing is crucial. Masks we haven't really talked about. Um, I think the mask issue is very interesting. Um, 
Uh, but, but, you know, if we have another conversation, we can talk about masks. Uh, but that's, that's really it. You know, occasionally um, I write something that, you know, Fox News will pick up or other outlets will pick up. But as we talked about, the places like the New York Times op-ed page or the Wall Street Journal op-ed page, um, where I used to write, you know, I, I've, had, I've had pieces published on both of those pages in the last couple of years. I'm not sure they're open to me anymore. Um, and that, that's really disturbing. Again, you can think I'm totally wrong and you're totally wrong, but people should hear us. They should hear that there's another side to this. Amen. And by the way, you've always got an opportunity. If you want to write OutKick, we're going to have 10 million readers this month. One reason we're blowing up is because I think people want debates. They want real discussion of issues. And so you're always welcome uh, to check out OutKick.com and write for All us right. anytime. We'd love to have it. All right. Well, it's been a great pleasure. I, I, I hope I didn't, you know, sort of talk too much about, about you know, the, the cannabis book or that stuff. But I do think people should know that, 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 that this, my, my contrarian views on this don't come out of nowhere. They come from sort of an understanding, unfortunately, of what the media has become, uh, you know, in the last decade. Amen. I appreciate you. I keep up the good work. I love the fact that you're not bending to the will of the masses, and we'll talk to you again. That's Alex Berenson. Go follow him on Twitter. Read his books on Amazon. I am Clay Travis. This has been Wins and Losses. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.